So for today, we are going to continue in our study of 1 Corinthians. We have started this series quite some time ago, and I, we've taken a break over the holidays addressing the beautiful message of the gospel through the Christmas story. And now um, we'll return to 1 Corinthians 15. This is where we at, we're at. This series I, I've titled, you know, God's Invitation to Live and Love at a Higher Level. God has invited you and I to live and love at a higher level. And I really believe we need to understand that and remind ourselves that. Um, right now, this time of year, we should seize the opportunity that's kind of cultural, it's, it's chronological, it's calendar year. We've ended one year, and we're starting the next. So people come up with these things called New Year's resolutions, right? And I believe you should really at least consider, hey, this is a good time to reset. Good time to restart some things, rethink some things. How am I doing here? What can I do there? How can I approach maybe some of the important things in my life in a different way? Or maybe I need to reset what's important to me. And so realizing that God has called us to a closer relationship with him. And that came through um, the work, and then we're going to see it from our text today, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that brought us into a born-again relationship with him. When we, when we received this gift of life, this new life, when we agreed with God individually about our own sin personally, and we acknowledged that we needed his forgiveness, and whatever scenario and details that were in, in, involved in this in your life, but when you received his forgiveness, when you agreed with him, he believed that Jesus is God, you put your trust in him, you stayed in this world, but you were born again, born of the Spirit. You're still in this world, but you're called now to live and love at a higher level, to live in this world with the awareness of this new life. And so this series I found very encouraging myself. Um, it's exciting always, I believe, to dig into the Word of God and work through. And so... Um, Today, what we're going to do is, you know, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. And what we have in these first few verses of chapter 15, we have a bit of a, a review, so to speak, a brief synopsis of the good news. That is God's news concerning salvation and the forgiveness of sin. So let me lay out a little bit of a format, if you would, that we're going to follow. So we will see... In these first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to see the message of the gospel in the first three, or verses 3 and 4. We're going to see the evidence of the gospel, which is the eyewitnesses, going to be specifically identified. We're going to see the certainty of the gospel, as we'll see referencing verses 9 and 10, and that's transformed lives that confirm the certainty in a powerful way. And then the last thing we'll look at will be the ongoing work of the gospel, which is literally the action of grace. So what I'd like to do is read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll pause and pray, and then we'll work towards and work through this outline that I've presented to you. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you were saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. Some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, after that, Jesus was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. From the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let's pray, God, as we would consider what we just read, the the content of your word, may you open our hearts even more to have a greater grasp and a deeper understanding of grace, of the gospel, that we would know your goodness in a deeper fashion, Lord, that we would be people that are transformed by your presence, not just because of our discipline per se or our uh, wanting to look good, but ultimately we will be changed because of what you've done for us, because you're with us. And so today I would ask, Lord, that you would just walk us through the word. You would lead us along to know the truth, that we would experience what your word says, that we can know the truth and the truth will set us free, free from the shackles of temptation, from sin, from the works of the devil in this life. That we would be free, we would know the truth in all things and be encouraged by your presence. Teach us this morning. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, let's begin there in verse 1. He begins, as we've read, Moreover, brethren, it's kind of a, oh, by the way, but it's actually maybe more of above all. So thinking of chapter 1 through chapter 14, and, and, and you can reflect if you've read it. If not, you now have homework to read it. But it, you can reflect and go, okay, yeah, in chapter 1 there was this, and, and then it built in. There was this issue of division, and, and people were taking sides and developing cliques and hanging out with their buddies and, and, and come up with this whole thing that, you know, I'm of Paul or I'm of Peter or I follow this guy. And, and he, you know, had that, and he addressed that. And, and then there was carnality that had crept into the church in a deeper way, and he addressed that. And, and then, as we know, it carried in in chapter 12, he addressed the gifts of the Spirit, addressing the carnality, to, if you would, to some degree in 11 chapters. And then chapter 12 through 14, addressing these, the spirituality. In other words, how to walk in the Spirit, how to understand the gifts, how to utilize those gifts. And now he says, moreover. So in light of that, but honestly above that, is this central simplicity that is so essential. Moreover, see, the Christian experience, the Christian life, it, it's, it's, it's not the gifts. They're important. Nor is it the uh, civil compliance concerning order and interaction. The most, the most important thing that is presented to us is the simplicity 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the simplicity of the gospel. It's one of the biggest difficulties we have as people because it is so simple. It really is. I don't mean simple in like, you know, dull. I mean simple and rich. It, it, it is, it, it's amazing, and we're going to look into that here in a moment. It says, in, you know, as he says, Moreover, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you received, and in which you also stand. Notice that there's a, there is a, a, a notable process. Uh, maybe you can just see it this way. Paul is declaring, I made known, you received, and you stood upon. It's really important. See, he, he was one, and your life testifies, as a Christian, you speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes you get to use your words. Mostly it's your life expression. And the way you live speaks of the gospel. Now, some people, you know, you, as you make it known, they'll receive that. It may open up an engagement, an interaction, a conversation. And some people, because of how you have chose to follow Jesus Christ, they will be impacted by that, and they will receive also. But they will need to do like what you would choose to do, to stand upon it, to stand upon that, to take hold of it. He says, in which you received and in which you stand, because he's going somewhere with this. You've seen it. He's saying, in which you received and which you stand, verse 2, by which also you are saved. Saved by the gospel, the full gospel of Jesus Christ. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It's kind of scary, really. But it actually brings clarity for, for many of us. Because sometimes we, we, we wonder. Sometimes people don't stay the course. They, they are excited and ignited. And they seem to be on track. And then they're, they're not there. They tend to wander and vacillate and move away. We see three things in here that I think help us process um, just interaction with people. Some don't hold fast. Well, hold fast there just speaks of you highly value something that you hold fast to. You embrace it as, as essential. It's an essential thing. It's a most important thing. And so we see here, he says, you, 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 you hold fast that word which I preach to you. That word, we're going to see the specifics to that here in the next two verses. But you hold fast to this truth of the gospel. You embrace it. Unless you believed in vain. And what was that saying? It speaks of unless it was never really that important to you. See, I know, you know, most of us understand. It's just a hard thing to process. Some have been interested, even intrigued to some degree, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but but it, it, it it's not what they were willing to hold tight to. It, it's a sad observation. I think we can agree when you see someone go through trials and storms or even successes, and 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 they don't hold tight to that which was once interesting to them, the, the reality of life and the various things, and they they wander away. They're not holding tight to the gospel now. I, am, I look at my own life, and I consider this principle, and I think, yeah, there's times that I, I was that way, honestly. In other words, I started out in a, in a season, I was doing well, but then there's a point where I just, I, I learned a form of religion called Christianity, and I just started following and showing up and doing certain things 
But I really wasn't holding tight to the truth of the gospel and, and what it meant deep inside of me. And so I, I really struggled for a season. I think you can understand, you know, vain here speaks of um, lacking value or purpose. If you hold on to it, unless you, unless you believed in vain, it wasn't that important to you. Maybe it was relational. Some friends went to church, so I went to church, you went to church, whatever. We went to church, but it wasn't that valuable. Some have believed, but not for a purpose, nor because it was valued. Now, I, I, don't, I don't stand here and, and, and you speak that negatively, because I know for a fact in my life, many people spoke the gospel by their lifestyle and through their words to me, and I did not value what they showed me. But they continued to shine the light of truth into a reprobate and unrepentant soul. They continued to engage. They, continued, they didn't judge me. They didn't come down on me. They didn't criticize me as a hell-bent sinner. They just continued to shine the light of truth. And, and so don't, don't um, inadvertently go, oh, that person's not saved because they don't value the gospel. It's like, no, they haven't, they haven't seen the value of the gospel yet. Continue to shine that light of truth. Continue to present it. Because the truth is, even in the first generation, in the first century, even before what we would identify as the church, considering the chronology of the book of Acts, people physically engaged with the Lord Jesus Christ and still walked away from him. They still were not interested. He was just an itinerant teacher with a carpentry background, wandering through Galilee and, and Judea. They, they, they weren't impacted by him. But I know some of them later come to a true relationship with him. If the Apostle Paul was actually one of them that I believe later we know he come into this deep relationship. So we see here this, this simplicity of the gospel. Um, let's go to the message here in verses 3 and 4. The message of the gospel. We have the message. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. This beautiful simplicity that reconciles the complexity of sin. Sin is a complicated thing. Rebellion of humanity, individuals, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have rebelled against God. And the complexity that that brings in and all the, the, the guilt and the shame and all the backwards reasoning, it, it's complicated. And yet the simplicity is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Don't be drawn into some errant logic. Some present that, that Jesus was a good man was a good good uh, moral teacher, a noble human being who lived for people, but he was just another man. He's just a man who, who lived a good life, and, and you know, that's good. It's, it's, some, it's someone we can emulate. What a horrible understatement. He, he is God in human form. He died for our sins. His life was a purpose. He, he came specifically to endure the cross. He came specifically to rescue humanity. So let's not think that he just, he just died to set a good example. Literally, we're told that he, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. It wasn't some new thing that broke on the scene, you know, 
there outside of Jerusalem, a new religion formed. No, this is, this is the culmination. This is the prophetic declaration of God bringing new life to humanity, restoring the relationship that they had, they could have. So understand, we see from this text, this is, that's why I say this is so sweet just to capsulize it. The message of the gospel, Christ died for our sins. According to scripture, the, the Bible speaks of this event we read of that we just celebrated, not only Christmas, but we'll celebrate Easter, the resurrection. The Bible spoke about it hundreds of years before it took place. And then it took place exactly how God said it would take place. So here at this point in human history that was, previ- was proclaimed prophetically, fulfilled perfectly, was a purpose. He died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was buried, literally put into a tomb. We know that to be true. The Bible is very clear. Some would say, well, I wasn't there. I, how could you know? Some who like to philosophize and, and kind of stimulate their intellect and show their stupidity. And in reality, how could, you, how could you so pompously say, I wasn't there, I can't confirm? How childish would that be if we applied that in every area of our life? I wasn't there, I can't confirm. He was buried. Well, you don't know. If you've studied this and looked at this and, and some of the theories that were propagated and, and promoted in the first century and on, it just, it's just it's mind-boggling what we can come up with as humanity to explain away what God has done. Well, we don't know. We, some say that he swooned. Have you ever heard of the swoon theory? So what that basically conveys is he was sort of dead, but not quite dead yet. And then he'd come back to life, kind of, they took him off the cross, and he kind of got a good deep breath, had a little rest, you know, took a COVID shot, and got all better. And everything's fine, and he's doing good. You know what I'm saying? It's like, how silly can you be? I mean, you know the way that this could have been, this whole thing we call Christianity, the whole, the resurrection of Christ, you know the way it would have been easily proved to be false? Show us the body. See, he resurrected, he, he was buried, and he rose the third day. So if he didn't rise, come up with a corpse. Show us the body. And do you, you think there was any people in his age in that day, in that moment, that were opposed to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that wanted to disprove it? The Romans did. The Jews did. They were shamed. He who came to his own and his own did not receive him, they crucified him. So to clear their good name, there's one thing that could be done. Really simple. Can we agree? Show me the body. You know, you guys keep saying this resurrection thing happened, all this stuff. The body's right here. We, we, we produced the body. Here is, this is the body of Jesus. Well, you couldn't bring it about because it was walking about. He was there. And so it's so powerful because as we start realizing it, he rose the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul is presenting to you and me this beautiful synopsis, this glorious simplicity, that this is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins. He was buried, physically buried. He rose the third day, according to the scriptures, conquering death and hell, showing himself to be God. He bodily ascended into heaven, confirming the very declaration of prophecy. Isn't that awesome? 
You know, sometimes we're like, oh, you know, I don't understand all these Bible terms and doctrine, and well, does that mean this? It's like, here, listen, just always do what we have right here. This I know to be true. This I know to be true. Jesus Christ died for my sins. Jesus Christ was buried, put into the tomb for my sins, and he rose from the dead for me. That I know to be true. And I, I go back to, I call it going back to basics. When life gets complicated, spiritual life seems to be cloudy, I go back to the basics. This I know to be true. Jesus Christ died for my sins. Jesus Christ was buried. He rose the third day according to the scriptures. That's the message of the gospel. Let's consider in the next portion the evidence of the gospel. I've already alluded to it and talked briefly about it. The eyewitness accounts. We're told in verse 5 that after he arose, that he was seen by, you can pronounce it Cephas or Cephas or Simon Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. It's not like during a sermon type of fallen asleep. It's this fallen asleep that's like um, dead. That's kind of what the Bible's referring to there. In verse 7, after that, he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And then we see in the next portion that by the apostle Paul as well. Luke tells us in his in the gospel account that Jesus appeared personally to Peter. But we're not told of the timing, and we're not told of the conversation. But I think it's important to you and to me to realize he does that. He, he speaks to our heart, whether he, as we know, he spoke to the Apostle Paul through a dream when he, Paul was there struggling with his calling and trying to work out what to do there in Corinth. And in Jesus, you can find this, I believe, in Acts 18, kind of working it out. He appeared to him. He spoke to him. He spoke to, 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 to Peter. Do you think Peter was at a point in his life that he really needs some form of confirmation? I mean, track with me. He, he was there, he busted out the pocket knife, did a little hacking on the ear of Malchus the high priest, he's going to defend the Lord. And yet Jesus corrects him, and then they all scatter. And they're, they're, they, they, they bolt, and, and then they're trying to learn from a distance. And their Lord was brutally beaten, and their hope died. Their hope died. They seen him on a cross. They, they, they knew he was placed in a tomb. The stone was rolled to block the entrance to the tomb. Peter, he's one of them. He had given everything to follow Jesus. Everything was there. And yet now, what is going on? But then their report came. Some of the women had said, hey, he's risen from the dead. He, the tomb is empty. And Peter hotfoots it over there. Visual verification. He's not here, but I don't know where he is. And he's starting to process all this and all this emotion. And do you, and I just say it this way. I believe, this is my only, this is my opinion. It's all it is. I believe the encounter that Jesus brought to Peter post-resurrection, the first conversation was to bring comfort and encouragement and to stir the embers of hope and prepare Peter for what is to come. Because Peter is going, to, his life is going to—it's changed pretty, pretty radically already. He's changed vocations from fisherman to part-time fisherman, basically, 
And now it's going to change phenomenally. Peter will be instructed like you and I. Go into the world and declare the good news and make disciples. So I believe as Jesus spoke with him, you know, and it was a verification. Paul inserts it here. We know that the Holy Spirit wants us to realize that he was seen by Peter. He was also seen by the 12. The 12, I believe, what we have there is speaking of the apostles, you know, like the 12. Because there's not 12 of them, right? Judas took a hard left, so to speak, not politically, but kind of. Judas Iscariot. Because I believe he believed in vain. I believe he's an expression of someone who believed in vain and then rejected the gospel. He walked with the Lord, Judas Iscariot. He's seen the hand. He's seen the work. He's seen the power. He's seen the miracles. But there was something in his mind, and he, he, he just did not believe unto salvation. He chose to reject it, and he believed in vain. We see also there in verse 6 that there were was more than 500 eyewitnesses that that had seen Jesus after his resurrection. You want to talk about visual verification? What a case in court. You you go to court, and you're you're just a note-taker. You're a journalist for this case that brought before the judge, and you have to make notes. And then you look at the eyewitness list, and there's 500 people, and you're like, I'm going to miss lunch. There's going to take a statement from 500 eyewitnesses. What a powerful thing that is. I think we overlook that sometimes. I believe it's inserted for our understanding that there were people living in that time, at that time, who seen and engaged with the risen Lord. Let us never let logic, thought, or culture creep in and impede our ability to take hold of this truth, Jesus Christ rose from the dead for me. It is so important. Man, over 500, and many of them were alive at the time 1 Corinthians was written. Do do you think there's a few people talking about this event in human history? Powerful. Now, we're 2,000 years removed, so it's hard to place ourselves there, but I, I think we're getting a glimpse of it even just this morning, of, of the truth and the centrality and the simplicity. He goes on to tell us that in verse 7, after that, Jesus was seen by James and then by all the apostles. James was Jesus' half-brother. James would be used by God to bring forth a message of God titled the book of James. James and the other brothers of Jesus, and potentially probably even the sisters, didn't really believe he was who he was. They they didn't, they actually presented some form almost of opposition until some event, something significant happened in the siblings' life, in their lives. The same thing I believe happened to it, and it helped Mary to work through some things. He rose from the dead. He said, I will rise from the dead. You can do that as homework. How many times did Jesus say on the third day I will rise again? He actually, it's recorded in the Gospels. He said it would happen, and they were too afraid and too deeply concerned to, to receive the truth. And then he rose from the dead. James, I, can you imagine? First of all, you're living in the shadow of Jesus. 
So, you know, let's face it. There might be a little sibling rivalry on James's part, not Jesus's. It's like, why can't you do it the way Jesus did? But I don't know. It's just humorous speculation. We do know James embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, he took hold of it. Jesus appeared to him. Jimmy, here I am. It's me. Like, oh, my. And he was a powerful uh, instrument, you know, servant of the Lord. Uh, says there also um, in verse 7, he appeared to James and then to the, all the apostles. Uh, I, I'd lean towards this being those, possibly it's the same group of 12 that we've looked at, considered. But I lean towards it, could also, we, we want it to be potentially to consider it at least, that it's those that were outside of the twelve. Because there was those 12 apostles that God had uniquely picked, and they, they uniquely and beautifully got to physically walk with him. But an apostle is a delegate, one who is sent forth with orders. So there were other delegates. We know even in the gathering in the book of Acts, there in the upper room, and in that time there um, before, um, or I mean, when after his ascension, they were supposed to wait. There's 120 people there. And so I, I say all that because, you know, the word apostle is sometimes abused and t- treated like some holy position or something that elevates you or the apostle above anybody else. If you look at what the apostles did, they served the Lord Jesus Christ. They received from him, they served him, and they gave glory to him. They didn't draw attention to themselves. Good reference or reminder. In verse 8, notice he says, Then of, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. The Apostle Paul had an encounter with his, with his resurrected Lord. You, you may know of it as the Damascus Road experience. You remember that one? It's really fascinating because in Scripture, we understand between Genesis and Revelation, you only have so much space. So, you know, a retail concept in, in uh, brick-and-mortar stores and stores, you know, retail space is important. You put things on a end cap or in a row. You strategically locate it to move a product for profit. So you only have so much space to work with. So you, you, make, you recognize this space is valuable. Scripture, only there's only so much space between Genesis and Revelation. And so when you insert, when God compiles this, anything that's repeated is not because he had a space he didn't know what to put on the discount shelf. It's repeated for your understanding. Paul's account of the, his encounter with Jesus Christ is recorded three times. You'll find it in the book of Acts chapter 9, uh, I believe again in 22, and then again in chapter 26. And it's fascinating if you think about that. He's speaking of this I know to be true. This is what happened to me on the Damascus Road. This, this experience with the Lord. You know, was Paul... A, a good servant of the Lord? No, he was a, a very devout religious person. He went north to Damascus to cut off this movement we would call Christianity. He had permission to go up and basically sever this thing and then come back into Jerusalem and eliminate it. And, and something happened on the road. He literally encountered Jesus, and Jesus said, what's up? Well, he didn't say it that way. He said, Paul, what, what are you doing? Why do you persecute me? 
And Paul had this, he references it. I mean, it's just really powerful, I think, to just consider that. Why have I say all this? This is powerful eyewitness proof of the resurrection. There was powerful eyewitness proof of the resurrection. It leads us to our third point, the certainty of the gospel. We see that, I believe so beautifully, in verses 9 and 10. For Paul is the least of the apostles, who is not worthy to be called an apostle. And here's why. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So we see here this certainty of the gospel transformed lives. We, we have it not only in a hint or an indication here with Paul, but we know from the others as Peter will be used by God to share First and Second Peter letters as, as others will be you know, used by God to impact the world around them, transformed lives, I believe is one of the most overlooked um, confirmations of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People confuse it as like you just got religion. Did, did people say that about you once you went from you know, living of this world, being born again, now learning to live for God? They said that of me because they seen a change. Oh, yeah, Davis got religion. That's what was said in the truck shop. Oh, he got religion. He's cleaned up his act. And I'm like, that was confusing to me. because, like, No, there's, there's something much deeper than my discipline. I guarantee you that. There's much deeper than just a, a moral or ethical choice. It, it's not what you think it is. It's much more than this perception that you have. And so transformed lives in this room, listening to this message, historically for 2,000 years, transformed lives. People call it religious. People think of it, oh, you're just a religious person. No, no, no. That's the last thing a Christian is, is religious. A born-again Christian is in a right relationship with the living God. And so understand and even remind yourself, you know, the disciplines we impart, the things that we do, are not to appease God or somehow please God, it's that we could have a greater understanding of God, a greater knowledge of God. We gather together on Sunday mornings like today so we can worship. We want to express adoration, gratitude, thankfulness. We want to bow before the living God. We want to gather with people that do want to do the same thing. It's not that we're trying to gain a better standing with God. His grace has already brought us into this glorious relationship. So transformed lives, I believe, are one of the most amazing things you can tell of your transformation, and other people may observe it as religious expression. But you know this. You know this. If you're born again, born of the Spirit, you've seen how God changed your thinking. You've seen how he's changed your values. You've seen how you've seen yourself like this, and he says you're this. And you're realizing, man, he, I think I'm a loser. But he died for me. And now you're working through this reality, going from your perception to his promises in this journey called life. Let's look at the last point I would mention. So we have three things we've looked at so far um, in these first 11 verses. The message of the gospel, the evidence of the gospel, the certainty of the gospel. And let's close out with the ongoing work of the gospel drawn from this same text, verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not Popeye, you know? 
It's like, it's literally this beautiful statement. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul knew that he didn't deserve this high calling that he'd received. The gospel of Jesus Christ penetrates the depth of our soul, revealing that we are in need of a Savior. Paul came to that realization, and he understood it wasn't because he was born right, and he did right, and he lived right. We'll look at Philippians 3 on Wednesday night as I'm going to look at some things really kind of considering the end of this year and moving forward, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to the things which are ahead. And we'll catch a little bit of Paul's talking. It's like, hey, I know how I was born and raised. I know what was brought into my life through Judaism. And he realized that accomplishes nothing to me. He understood this, this work of grace was what was so important to him, that he knew God's unmerited favor, undeserved kindness in his life. I was thinking about this because there was a point in my life I would tell people that I was a Christian because at that point I wasn't anti-Christ. I wasn't opposed to the message. I previously was. I just thought it was church was a bunch of weak people with nothing to do on Sunday. But as I started having a few young adult moments um, that I already alluded to, I raced motocross and did other things that are very much adrenaline-based. Adrenaline is that thing in the male brain that as it elevates, intelligence decreases. <laughs> right? I don't think that's probably a good expression of it. And so I would just do things that would defy logic. And I had some moments where I survived, and I look back and go, ooh, that could have ended bad. Yeah, whatever. Good problem. Well, now I have, I'm married, I have a child. Things are, I'm just weighing things out with a little more responsibility and a little less carelessness. Well, Kim starts coming to church. She'd made a commitment to Christ. I'm seeing the transformation in her life. And so I start going and I start learning. I learn how to sit in the chairs. I learn how to stand when they stand and Sing when they sing. I sing like this. And just sometimes I didn't even realize it. I actually, all I got this kind of figured out. And I, I had agreed with some prayers at the end of a service. Like, yeah, okay. I wasn't saved. And didn't realize it. I actually thought I was. It wasn't until one moment that my heart was ripped. Because God, in his unmerited favor, in his grace, revealed to me the depravity of my soul. He revealed to me these thoughts that I had, which I could hide from you. I could hide from these motives and these ways I seen, this, this, this wicked ugliness that was within me. When I came to that realization, it was God's grace that taught me I needed a Savior. I needed him. I was learning behavioral response. I was learning practical disciplines. I didn't realize I was not born again. And when that realization, that revelation from God that, Dan, I know you who you are. And I wanted to throw up, literally, internally. I was just like, it was sickening. But then he said, but this is why I died. I died for you. 
this I've done for you, that you can have forgiveness, that you can have new life, that you can have this. And, I, you know, it, it's amazing to me because I, I look at my journey and I look back at those times, which was three decades ago, like, man, that was amazing. His grace, his unmerited favor poured out toward me. I, I, and the grace was not in vain. The grace was not without purpose. It was with purpose. So I I was saved, and, and then... I started serving. And, and, and you know, it's, it's interesting because there's grace that brings us into this relationship. And then Paul says, and I labored all the more. He didn't labor to get more grace. He was empowered by the grace he'd received. He now was realized, oh, man. So my wife and I, we have these interesting conversations because I mentioned once that men think different. Um, I think you may realize that she does. So it was like, I know how I lived my life before I was born again. You could call me at 8 o'clock at night, say, hey, there's ducks on the pond. You want to go? I would be up at 3.30 in the morning. I would meet you there. I would be there with you. I would stand out in the cold, playing with toys, decoys, playing with toys, shooting guns, and walking around in the mud. And go to work the next day. I, 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 you could say to me, guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? There are certain hobbies and interests that I'm all in. I would work a full shift, come home, do what I needed to do, go to the bowling alley because the guy invited me to go to the bowling alley. And he would teach me how to bowl. I would bowl from 9 o'clock at night till midnight because I had an invite. I'd be up and I'd make it to work the next day. I would go fishing. I would drive up to, to Door Shack. And fish all night in a boat with chunks of ice bigger than the boat floating by. We're dipping our rods in the water and get the ice off the lines. We're using, you know, glow in the dark blurs and we're not catching fish and we come back the next week and do it again. Fished all night. I fished, we fished all night. We left there at three o'clock. I got in the morning. Or I got home at three o'clock in the morning. Kim had to go to work at four. I had to be to work at seven thirty. Well, I'm not bragging. I'm just saying, I did that for stupid things. Why would I not labor all the more in the reality of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm not works-oriented. My background says I might be, but I'm not works-oriented. I just think, man, how can I look back on my life and go, I would be interested in those trivial things with very minimal return, and I would invest finances and everything and time into them. And yet here's something so glorious. I think that's what we see in Paul. Man, I, I was after it. I did it. I was a religious guy. I was beating everybody. But then grace. And now because of grace, oh, I'm compelled. I'm propelled. I'm motivated. I'm stirred because of the great work God has done in my life. So we are not compelled to, to go do something because we're supposed to. We're actually empowered to do what our design and purpose really is. So we covered them, all four of them. I have uh, 12 more sections I want to cover that I didn't tell you about. <laughs> you know me. I'm not, I'm joking. We're going to wrap up. I have the worship team come up. I wanted to go to Titus chapter 2. I would like you to, if you have your phone with you, if that's where you, what you use is the Bible app, or if you have your, your physical Bible with you, if you could direct your attention to it. We will bring it up on projection, but I always encourage you, if you've been here coming very long, you know we're going through the Word together on Sunday morning. 
We're going to walk through the word. We're going to take hold of it. So I encourage you to have your Bible with you because as you, as you train your eye and you turn your heart to this text, um, there, there is just a, such an encouragement. It's such a reminder that this passage we've looked at presents to us the simplicity of the gospel and the importance of grace, the ongoing work of God in our lives. So we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. If you would stand with me, we'll, we'll read through that. And then I'm going to pray, and then they're going to, the worship team will lead us in a song of of worship together to close out our time. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For by the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. God, may we soak that in even more. Ponder and and meditate upon it this day. The simplicity and the beauty and the certainty of the gospel and presence of unmerited favor that would lead us and, and, and keep us on course. Oh, Lord, that we would realize even more the depth of your love. I would be out of place if I didn't even if I didn't offer this invitation at this moment. If you're here and and it was just continue with this attitude of prayer, but if you're here and you haven't entered into this relationship, you were at that point I was at it at one point where I was aware of moral and ethical adjustments, but I hadn't been born again. I just want to encourage you to just right now, this in your heart of hearts, right where you are, disagree with God. It begins with this simplicity. You agree with God concerning your sin, your rebellion against him, your rejection of him. Well, maybe you don't see yourself as that that bad. You're honest. Just be honest. You, You know you have not walked in the ways of God. You have not sought him. You have not lived perfectly. And the end result of that is therefore you're guilty of sin and you need his forgiveness of your sin. And so you would say, God, I agree with you concerning my sin. And I believe that you are God, that there is sufficient evidence. There is certainty. It is true. You died for my sins. You conquered death and hell when you rose from the grave. You ascended into heaven for you are God. And so I put my faith in you, Jesus. So as I agree with you about my sin, I, I acknowledge that. I put my faith in you. I believe in you, Jesus, that you are God. And I would ask you now to teach me how to live this new life, how to walk according to this truth, how to turn from those things behind me and turn towards you. Thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done. It's in your beautiful name, Jesus, we ask all these things. It's in your name we we rejoice. Amen. Amen.